0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Well With, All. Well With All believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Well With All's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Well With All.
1: Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
0: affect a community or neighborhood. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, an elevator worker's death at TripAdvisor spotlights the safety risk posed by thousands of elevators in Massachusetts that are overdue for inspection. Sides clash in an emotional battle over the demolition and development of the historic social service center, the Harriet Tubman House. And several South End American elms, which were cut down because of disease, get a new life thanks to local woodworkers. It's our local news roundtable. Later in the show, a young 20-something man writes a poignant letter to his mother who can't read. Poet Ocean Vaughn's debut novel, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, is our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. But first, joining me in the studio, Gin Doomchus, digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Hi, Gin. Hey, how are you? I'm good, and glad you're here. Seth Daniel, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. Hello, Seth. Hey, Kelly. And rounding out, Sue O'Connell, commentator for NECN and WGBH and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hi, Sue. Hello, Callie. All right. Well, I'm going to dig in with a piece that uh, Sue, both you and Seth brought to the table. And in truth, we've been covering a bit here at WGBH with my colleague, Soraya Wintersmith. And that's the emotions running high on both sides of the demolition of the Harriet Tubman House. Mm-hmm. So if people don't know where that is, it sits on the corner in South End of Columbus and Massachusetts Avenue. It's the colorful building with the big mural on it. Mm-hmm. And it's been there. It has a long history, and it's been serving the community in many different ways. Well, it's it's been sold due to be demolished. There's still going to be a community service center, but it's going to be condos. And it feels like the breaking point, Seth, for a lot mm. of people.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. no, this is true. There, there are high emotions on both sides. This culminated in a, a city meeting um, a few weeks ago that really got out of hand. And that went on for more than two hours. There were lots of arguing, scuffling, people trying to talk. No one could hear them. But the reason people are, are so worked up is because on one side – the people who own it, which is United South End Settlements, says they need to sell this building to, say, solvent. And they have other properties in the South End that they're going to consolidate into. And meanwhile, on the other side of the coin, there's there's a lot of people in the community that they say, you yeah, you're erasing us. You're erasing our past. And there's been many waves of gentrification in the South End, and each one as they say, you know, it takes more with it. That's that's their side. And uh, so, so this has kind of been boiling. You know, this goes back to urban renewal in the 60s and busing and everything, and it just sort of boiled over into this meeting where it all came to a head. And uh, it's a 66-unit building with a lot of interesting things on the first floor, including community space and uh, a social enterprise cafe that I think they're talking. The new building. The new be, building. Yes, right. right what they mm. pro- plan to do, which yeah, is exactly. what the meeting was about. But right. We never really got around to that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the background of it. And, and it's going to continue. There's another meeting on September 11th. Um, the city is trying to run it and trying to figure out how to run it best. We'll see what happens there. But the um, both sides are, are still at odds. There's some nonprofits, including Tenants Development Corporation, which, you know, Mel King was really big in that. And they fought the good fight many, many years and continue to do so. And and they're located in that building and have to find a new place. That's another piece of it, too. Um, so there's personal feelings there, too, that yeah, aren't always articulated, mm-hmm. but yeah. we all know about. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a tough situation. It really is.
0: Uh, you know, Sue, so in the midst of all of the emotion, as I'm reading Seth's piece in The Boston Sun, I was struck that the new building is going to provide space for... Artists that were moved out of the Piano Factory, which right. is still which is another a sore issue. Spot. right, right. right. Um, so I mean, it's it's all there. Yeah, I You're, mean, I
3: think that if you can take a view of this situation from above, it's really not about the Harriet Tubman House and United South and Southern settlements and the developer. This has become emblematic of how people feel they have been displaced and moved out of the South End. And this is sort of the tipping point. It's probably the last spot. I'm generalizing, but one of the last spots in the South End, that is the old South End. And now it's being turned into the new South End, which one would imagine would exclude South Enders. But I mean, it's important to note a couple of things. First of all, this was the Harriet Tubman House has had several locations. It's This wasn't the original Harriet Tubman House, although it's named for Harriet Tubman because one of the founders, three or four uh, African-American women who began the Harriet Tubman House in the middle of the 20th century in order to get services to African-Americans in the neighborhood. Uh, They were friends with Harriet Tubman, so it's not like Harriet Tubman lived here, like a George Washington Mm -hmm. lived here sort of moment. The United South and Settlements will continue to exist, which is the service program that's within the Harriet Tubman House. There have been concerns and accusations that the business model of USIS led to this, that there was not enough upkeep of the building uh, people might be picturing some great historic building. It's not a great historic mm-hmm. building. It's, no. a, it's a modern building. Mm-hmm. It's not it's that—
1: like a 60s schoolhouse. Yeah,
3: it's right. a 1960s schoolhouse. It's not like you walk in and go, this is beautiful, mm-hmm. you know. So the building has problems. The organization has had problems. Like many other things that boil over— the way it was communicated and yeah. the input from the community was not taken in. The way it was communicated out was not done appropriately. So it has become this flashpoint for for many things. I know David Goldman, who's a friend of mine, who's the developer, who's lived in the South End his entire adult life. His, I think, grandparents are from the South End, has nothing but good intentions. I know saying that about a developer <laughs> <laughs> uh, comes yeah. with a grain of salt, but, sure. um, you know, really wants to do the right thing. And... I criticized the city of Boston. I wasn't at the meeting. I read mm. Seth's uh, great reporting on it and talked to David, who was at the meeting, and a couple of other people. Did not allow a meeting or or have enough meetings in the way that they should be. Mm. You know, to have a meeting to let people express themselves. You know, exactly. which yeah. is important. Their mm. valid feelings about what what are going on to ask questions and then have a meeting about what the presentation would be about what's happening. Instead, what we had was this explosive meeting where, frankly, if you know, I think some of the presenters were women and they were confronted the way the protesters confronted them, we would be having a different conversation about mm-hmm. this because mm-hmm. it was really a very aggressive, mm-hmm. almost physically violent meeting, which is uncalled for under any circumstances. So I think cooler heads have to prevail at this yeah. September 11th meeting. The city has to do a better job. And the folks who are stakeholders in all of this – Community members, mm-hmm. the developer, the city, people who use United South and, um Settlement Services just need to come together because I think this is happening.
0: Mm. Yeah. you know? So I think, you know, um, one of the things that should be mentioned because you talked about how volatile it was uh, by a number of people who were presenting. In your piece, Seth, I think to a person they all – at the end of the meeting, apologized Apologize, right, for their behavior Man, yeah. did, yeah. and said, hey, I am so passionate about it, but I'm so angry. And speaking back to you, Sue, because there was no opportunity. We did right. not know, blah, 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 blah. Now, having said all that, before I let you two jump in again, I'm going to go over here to the business guy <laughs> <Mr>. <laughs> Kendim, just, and say, one of the things that the building is supposed to have is 17 percent affordable units, which, as you know, is an ongoing issue in Boston because we need affordable housing units. And that's that's good, but from a dispassionate business perspective on this, was there anything else that could happen in this situation? I mean just looking at it from a just the eye of the development phase that Boston seems to be in.
4: Well development in Boston is pretty expensive and I think that's kind of they're trying to strike that balance of setting aside affordable apartments or condos along with the developer being able to make some money off this. I think it is striking I think the, uh, the assumption is this is another luxury building mm-hmm. and I was at South Station on my way in today and just I looked up at the big screens the big ad screens and it was just ad after ad for you know these luxury condos you know a woman dipping her toe into a pool it's striking how much this is happening I know a lot of it is focused on the seaport but it's happening it's happening yeah, everywhere, everywhere Dorchester yeah. South End and yeah. and it's just for someone who was priced out uh, into the suburbs, it's just very striking to see that on a, on a fairly daily basis. And that explains, I think, in part also why the tensions are so high. And Kelly, are... the other part mm-hmm. of this,
3: too, uh, which is a, another developing story, is just that the, so many nonprofits
0: yeah. are mm-hmm. selling Showings. their
3: property in yeah. order to continue to exist yeah, and then right. looking forward to lease from hopefully the developers who are buying their properties. Right. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. through the entire South End, uh, all this, the like, Bed Franklin Institute, yeah, yeah. the y, um, mm-hmm. you know, they can't. The, their biggest asset is their property. And from a fiduciary responsibility from the board of directors, I mean, y- you know, you got to figure, am I going to keep the organization going or am I going to, you know, stay in this
0: building? And I think that's the hard choice that uh, yeah, so where, many nonprofits. Well, a lot of nonprofits various. are virtually nomads now, just sort of moving around trying mm-hmm. to find a space. Right. Um, and so you're right that they decide, well, our, we're, we're living in our our biggest asset. So if we yeah. can continue our existence by... By selling, but wow, that's a hard conversation yeah. to have with hmm. the people um, who've been there and using it, and yeah. it's such a great location. And, and all of that. you know,
3: United South End Settlements does so many good things. Yeah. I mean, we haven't, yeah. so, you know, they they, they have childcare, they have elder services. Yeah. I mean, it's been a gathering place. There's an art gallery. There's, mm-hmm. it's, it's been a, a a location that people in the South End have gone to for generations. So yeah, all that's time. that emotional, all ages. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, all ages. There was yeah.
1: there was one point, a low point in the meeting for me. Observing was when this is, was all about the the kids, right? Yeah. And one kid got up and tried to speak about yeah, that was what big. he wanted to see and why, and there was so much fighting and and literally you know pushing and shoving by the adults that no one heard him. Mm-hmm. And he just said, "I guess my idea is stupid," and he walked out. Oh. And and you know we were all there for. Everyone was there for him. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. this is such an issue, Kelly. I just want to point you know, Seth and I are somewhat competitors with the South End News. And I called him the next day after the meeting yeah. to make sure he was okay. Yeah. From, <laughs> like, you know, from covering the meeting. Yeah, it's, you know It's, so it's that's, very emotional. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right,
0: right. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on, again, over to you. This tragic story of the man in the TripAdvisor building dying really brought back your or the Boston Business Journal's a long-term investigation into the safety risk of Massachusetts elevators. And now, as one who rides an elevator all the time, I'm completely freaked out, let me just say. You,
4: you and the entire BBJ <laughs> newsroom, like, it's it's. we would text Greg uh, as he was working on this, of like, well, we're in another elevator where the certificate is passed due for inspection. Uh, let me back up a little bit. So Greg Ryan, my, my colleague there, he took a multi-month uh, investigation into elevator safety, that was brought to my mind uh, when the worker uh, died. Now he was a he was a maintenance worker and what the series focused on was people who work in those buildings, the uh, whether it's executives or or uh, employees, uh, lower level employees, and just how little inspected they can be. And I have a couple numbers yeah. here. Um, I just want to read them just just to make sure I get them right. Among the findings, nearly a dozen people were injured on passenger elevators from 2016 to 2018. The inspection certificates had been expired. This is all through review of state records. Five times since 1986, the state auditor has published reports revealing a high percentage of elevators are overdue for inspections, and the problem is continuing to persist. And this is this is across like high profile buildings, the Hancock Tower, mm. uh, the Children's Museum, It's one of those issues that's just been in the background, and it's a pretty serious one. 4,500 at this moment now overdue
0: for inspection. Now, that could mean, just to be fair, some small thing, but nine times out of ten, it means something related to safety, which is why we have safety inspections. Apparently, Governor Baker has now moved to put some more money in the budget to add personnel, but still... This is pretty scary. I think what somebody in the piece said: we need about seventy elevator operators to uh, inspection people, rather, to really be sort of in a in a good space to handle the work. Here's the other piece, Seth and <laughs> yeah. and, and Sue that got me. So you were overdue. So then you catch up and get your inspection. They don't have to reinspect. Mm-hmm. We just take your word for it that you did what you were supposed to do yep. correctly. Yep. Yeah.
3: We, we, we have come in, not only in the state of Massachusetts, but in the United States, somehow we have given way our governmental authority to private industry to tell us it's okay. I'm thinking of an airplane, for example, mm-hmm. which did the FAA did not have to inspect because they took Boeing's word for it that the changes were made and things were going to be fine. And this this has just ebbed and changed over this privatization over the past three decades that we now just believe we're just going to take the word for people that they fixed something that mm-hmm. the inspector has said that they've done. And this is another area where Mr. Fixit. Governor Charlie Baker needs to take <laughs> seriously. If we don't have money in the budget now, <laughs> you know, in this this yes. state of bounty that we oh, happen yeah. to be in right now, yeah. uh, to hire enough elevator inspectors to check and then, to your point, make sure that it's done,
0: when, yeah. when will we be able to do that? Now, yeah. we should also say again in the piece, it, uh, it said at one point when this became an issue a few years ago, the governor put some money in there and then... Uh, when budget time came, he cut the the money from the division, so we were sort of right back where we were. Now he's putting it back or adding more or whatever, but mm-hmm. we're in this kind of nether world where we haven't had enough, then it looked like you had enough, then it got cut, and so nobody knows what's going to happen at the end of this because it has, still has to be voted on and signed in
4: and all of that. Right, and as Sue pointed yeah. out, like, we're, we're, this is happening during an economic boom. In, in Massachusetts, and a
3: building boom with lots of <laughs> elevators.
4: Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's right. And and the governor has said he has acknowledged when Greg did speak with the governor, he did put this to him. And the, and the governor said the building boom is, is causing, you know, obviously the need for, for more inspections. But that's not an excuse. And he did say, like, this needs to be addressed. And this is something that does need to be tracked, because as we've seen with the state auditor's report, this keeps coming up. And it just needs... Uh, More attention because it's such a it's such a basic thing. We all take elevators every single day. Yeah, especially downtown with all the skyscrapers. So,
0: well, I think what was important for me for your piece is that, of course, all of us heard the story of the maintenance worker at TripAdvisor. I'm thinking that's kind of a freak thing, but actually we're, we're just lucky it hadn't happened more. Based it on could. what we know in this piece now. Mm. Well, that's yeah. the thing, and I, I
4: think that's, that's where more information is yeah. needed. Uh, I believe he was an employee of Otis, which is one of the companies there that that handles the, the elevators. It definitely bears some investigating. I'm sure the federal officials are looking into it.
0: Oh. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Under the Radar local contributors, Ginn Doomschus, you just heard him, of the Boston Business Journal, Seth Daniel of the Independent News Group, and Sue O'Connell, commentator for NECN and WGBH, and co-publisher of Bay Window's, and the South End News. We're discussing the local stories you might have missed. Now, here's another one that, Seth, mm-hmm. people are grinding their teeth about. Oh, <laughs> and uh, um, The Chelsea Street Bridge.
1: Oh.
0: Wow. <laughs> oh,
1: we may not be able to say what we really think of it on the radio. <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs> just so people know, the Chelsea Street Bridge, maritime traffic yes. has precedent over land. This is what I learned that just... Jumped out at me, yes. according to the Coast Guard. So the bridge goes up when a vessel requests it. Yeah. Whenever, whenever, whenever. time it is.
1: Whenever, and and, <laughs> and frequently at rush hour. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, And it's been that way since it came on some time ago. So the big problem is that it's 175 feet tall, and the regulations governing such bridges are that it must go to the top every time, even if you have a barge, which is 10 feet tall. So it can be upwards of 40 minutes that you're sitting there. And this bridge is important because it carries the new Silver Line. So that means that your great new <laughs> Silver Line service is sitting there for 40 minutes waiting. Uh, mass port um, shift changes. Well, employees park on the other side of the bridge and have to go over the bridge to get there. Flights have been delayed for some time because the employees on the tarmac loading the Baggage she cannot went. get there. <laughs> and and this is this is an old thing. Mass DOT, the Department of Transportation, they own and operate the bridge, right? You think, well, they and they're own. mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> they're very mad because they operate the yeah. T and everything and, and everything else. And you think, well, they own it, they can do what they want. No, <laughs> they cannot. And and That's they're they're at, the of, they're at the will of they're at the will of all of these. Mostly it's oil tankers. That's mm-hmm. what we're talking about. And some barges that carry um, petroleum materials, because just on the other side of that bridge is the largest oil farm mm-hmm. in all of New England and the Canadian Maritimes. So they provide heating oil, gasoline for, for a huge, huge part of the economy in the region. And um, they take precedent. When they call, they go through.
3: One time I missed a flight, a morning, like mm-hmm. a 5 a.m. flight, yeah. uh, and the bridge was up. It was, it was, it, or a 6 a.m. flight. It was, yeah. it was, it's amazing. And, and it's um it seems unsolvable.
0: Well, they have this new thing. <laughs> yes, Wait a they're minute. trying. They're this trying. This new thing called the Advanced Notification Program (ANP), mm-hmm. but this went into effect on July eighth. But they use the term "clunky" as yeah, a way clunky. to describe how it's yeah, it's, sort it's of really not hard been. to get information.
1: Yeah. It's hard you know, when when vessels are on the water. It's hard to predict when they might come through. Yeah. Um. So they're doing their best through. Twitter, um, the T alerts. Yeah. Well, one of
0: the things they're talking about is a half bridge, like the half of the bridge mm-hmm. goes up, not the whole thing. Maybe that would help, but they're still trying to work this out. So yeah. just want to let everybody know, gnashing of teeth
4: continues <laughs> on that.
0: that yeah. Well,
4: so, so I, li- I live in Weymouth and we have uh, the Four River Bridge uh, that uh, connects Quincy yeah. and, and Weymouth. And there's actually the Patriot Ledger sends out an email alert. I believe the Patriot Ledger has said it's it's one of their most popular. Of course, uh, email alerts mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. people want to know when they're going to get stuck as yeah. the as the bridge gets raised. So, yeah, oh my god,
3: we live in a port city,
0: yes, we do. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of gnashing of teeth, Sue, the oh. search is on for a new Boston campus chancellor, so yeah, um, that was a mess the last time, yeah, UMass Boston, yeah, yeah. and uh, and this time, however, it appears that the search committee um is, has a confidentiality agreement, a and uh, b. Uh, there, it's larger and includes more people who actually work there, some of the faculty members. Yeah, this is sort
3: of like a uh, redo of the USIS uh, Harriet Tubman House conversation yeah. where, you know, when you think it would be uh, something that chancellors and, and colleges and universities know how to do, which is to look for, for folks to work for them. But um, last time around, UMass Boston came up with candidates, uh, the staff um, and, and uh, support systems and faculty were shocked were surprised by it, felt they hadn't been involved in the process. There had been some bad dates on when things were supposed to happen and opportunities to interview and see the candidates, um, along with all the other problems that are sort of happening with the UMass uh, total umbrella term. And the candidates withdrew, <laughs> which all <of> them. I <laughs> totally get. I mean, yeah. you know, there's a part of this where, although you're working for, a you know, a, a, a public office uh, at UMass Boston um, – you know, if, if you're applying for a job, you may not want your current employer to know, or you may not want other people to know, and you certainly don't want to be publicly embarrassed
0: exactly. uh, if you
3: get to a final stage. And, and not only do you not get hired, but then the entire people that you would be uh, working with reject you. So uh, it seems this time that they've put better, better um, actions in place to include more people, as you said, into the process in advance, to have a larger and diverse group, to protect the confidentiality of the people applying for the job. But again, I, this this is just shocking to me that, um, you know, the simple practice of hiring someone has, has turned into such
0: a, a complete chaotic mess. And it's, you know, it's also a byproduct of so much else that's been going yeah. on over there. <laughs> and, that you know, that school really needs um, some leadership that's going to be able to, you know, pull them out from a morale standpoint and a vision standpoint um, and help them, you know, stand where i thought they were a few years ago when you know people were talking about them right and they're it's, building all yeah. those great
3: science yeah. buildings and they're yeah. really were changing the or enhancing the direction that they were going in and in the meantime they're building these state of the art uh, 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 classrooms and facilities, and the garage was crumbling, yeah. right? And everyone who has been at UMass Boston for any reason <laughs> would complain about taking their life in their hands going in the garage. Literally. Oh, That's yeah. not, not really. a joke, yeah. yeah but so. nothing happened while right. they're building these beautiful new buildings. So, yeah, they definitely need a strong leader who can go in and just... You know, I think that this is one of the gems in the 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 country's educational system. Yeah. I mean, I think it serves uh, a population of kids, of young students, of young adults, uh, who can really change their lives by going to UMass Boston and really may become incredibly. Um, competent and and contribute great things to our society, especially here in Boston, but
0: it's got to get its act together. Mm -hmm. Well, that, and I think the schools also was given a short shrift amidst all this moving around of merging, buying, selling with all the other places. So, Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, Marty Meehan has uh, lost the confidence of a number of people, so we'll see where this goes. Mm -hmm. Um, can Goodness can't come uh, fast enough over there in that direction. All right. right, Gen Duptious, once again, mouth open, did not know <laughs> that WeWork, which is a company I see everywhere, is the second largest tenant in Boston. What, the what is going on?
4: <laughs> it happened in five years, right? It just happened so quick, <laughs> and and this is something uh, my colleague uh, Catherine Carlock, she's the real estate editor um, for for the BBJ, uh, just a fantastic uh, reporter and uh, just person too. She's awesome, and um, she dove into kind of some of the landlord concerns um, about WeWork because they pitch themselves as the tech company, but what they're what what they're doing is they're they're setting up these lease lease agreements um and all these deals for this space but they're saying th- it's unclear whether this this company is ever going to be profitable and in the tech world that's kind of become you know like well you know eventually Normal. we'll get, yeah yeah i mean yeah. amazon right yeah. like they for right. so many years uh jeff bezos said well you know like we're just going to keep plowing the money into the company but um the thing that's different with WeWork is i think some landlords are looking at it and being like okay but like you're gonna be profitable, right? Like, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and uh, and for them to become the, the the second largest tenant so quick, I think that that's caused that's uh, caused some folks to pull their collar a little bit, uh, especially as as we get closer to uh, uh, getting more and more information about the company.
0: So, two things. First of all, we want to be clear, Seth, that mm-hmm. this is not Work Bar. That's a different company. Yeah, this is We Work. <laughs> so don't, don't put them on. A, they they operate differently. And the the the, the second thing is. So if all their plans do not come to fruition, you have big empty spaces all across, I mean, many spaces. And I just go back to that hole in the ground, that Filene's basement for how many years was that? Um, That's what comes to mind, and it would be pockmarked throughout the city, these just big empty spaces, if if this doesn't work.
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) you know, supply and demand, perhaps it could help because there are some— really high commercial rates right now for for tenants and and they're getting pushed out all over the place and perhaps i don't know what their leases look like they're probably private but perhaps they're paying top dollar once again these larger companies paying top dollar and they're pushing out some of the mid-range or local companies or small businesses um i don't it's it's astounding that someone in this market in five years can can take up that much space and a lot of this is in new buildings too i think i particularly remember one in the fenway area that they that they have and um uh, the Red Sox were really buddied up with them, um, you know, uh, the ownership, and... Uh you know, yeah, it, it, it's it's shocking that they can do that in that short period of time.
0: Let me be clear. It's not cheap if you're no. a person. You know, the, how mm-hmm. it works. If people are going, well, what do you do there? That's your portable office. Or mm-hmm. if you, you're an entrepreneur. co or, or, right? Or, yeah, yeah, you co-work, and it's very uh, comfortable space. They mm-hmm. put all the stuff in there, the amenities that you would want Coffee. to have. And <laughs> the nice plush seats and all of that. Um, and plus you have a place to, to really do your business that's not in your home. A lot of people... Had been working in their home, and this actually works for them. But it ain't cheap. <laughs> no, it ain't, it ain't
3: cheap. But you know, it's an interesting business model, and it, it, it's I I, I was a mouth open as well when I was reading the stories uh, from Ginn. because you know, then then you start to wonder, well, if if the there is a recession, right, and mm-hmm. you imagine that some of these people who are using these spaces may not. Be, they might go to work for a company, you know, the marketplace will change. Mm-hmm. Do they then became become brokers of the spaces that they have? And somehow is there a secondary no. business deal here? Sublease. A, a subl so. you know, I don't know. No, I, mean, I think you just, come in and out. I think yeah, but we I mean but the a, but, yeah. but the we work do they do they have a secondary oh, I see. plan. No, I don't know. That they're looking ahead that okay there's going to be a recession. What's our what's our fallback here? Do we just become real estate agents? I think that's
0: the question that yeah. a lot of the people are asking about all of this. So we'll see. Anyway, um, here's the story, Sue, that you brought to our attention. The Joyful Heart Foundation um, has launched an accountability project because there are uh, 387 untested rape kits. Um, But what's interesting to me is that they're spread across 13 of the 14. Massachusetts. I mean, it's this is
3: yeah. This was uh, in uh, in yeah. mass live, uh, uh-huh. dot com, a story that I came across, and and you know we had the criminal justice reform bill that passed yes. last last time around in Massachusetts, and there was a part about in it about testing rape kits, and there's this this assumption that uh, that every all the evidence because we watch TV, right? Yeah, <laughs> and within like twenty four hours they've right. got the DNA of whatever. Uh, 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 evidence, physical evidence that they get, and that's not the case. There are hundreds of rape kits here in the state of Massachusetts that have been untested. Uh, there are jurisdiction issues regarding the, uh, the city, and the city of Boston uses one lab, and the counties may use other labs. There's also the issues of, um, you know, there are some uh, quote-unquote good reasons why some of them are tested. Sometimes the, the victim no longer wants to go forward with the case. Sometimes there's not enough uh, evidence and the prosecution may decide, for whatever reason, that they don't want to go forward. But there's also cases, rape kits that have been misplaced, yes. that are lost. There's yes. a story of a woman in there whose yes. rape kit had been lost for for decades, and then just showed up. And uh, you know, it just seems to be a high priority from what we have learned over the past ten years regarding sexual assault and who the perpetrators are. We're finding that uh, it's not all men that mm-hmm. are perpetrators. Yeah. There are a few men. Who 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 attack a number of women and are serial rapists or That's serious right. assaulters, serial assaulters. So therefore, if you were able to test all the, the DNA of the rape kits, you might actually be able to catch some people before they go on before to do they it go again. on to do it again, and it might. So uh, this organization has been working to bring uh, just just shine a light on the fact that the the kits are not being tested. This is like the bad news. We're like the bad news report. No, no, like, no, looking at no, the elevator and yeah. demand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but this is, it, yeah, but this is, is so important. Yeah, is. and, and,
0: to, and to, go ahead. I just want to remind people that they just caught that sex offender uh, that, uh, who was traveling out of state mm-hmm. just this week. And I started thinking about how many people, you know, because he's been missing for a while and they've been looking for him. Right. Um. Mm-hmm. I, I just this this is this is scary stuff right you know
4: and and i just want to say kudos to uh melissa hansen yes. uh who i work with at mass live she she's been on this issue um and she's stuck with it and uh you know i it, it's it's important to bring this uh kind of thing to light
0: yes it is. All right. Well, we're going to end on a up note. Okay. Seth always has a good. Uh, up I'm
4: the good note. reporter.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's a good guy. Well, those elms, those American elms in the South End yes. that were diseased that got um, had to be cut down, mm-hmm. have a new life. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. it's it's restoration. You know, that's um, in a very sad situation. Um, Dutch elm disease claimed most of the American elms, which were very common in Boston parks back in the '80s and '90s. They lost most of them. Franklin Square um, in in the South End on Washington Street was kind of an outlier. Um, They have some beautiful American elms still there. Um, They're about 170, 175 years old. This year, um, early in the year, they found that uh, Dutch elm disease had got into some of them. They have a plan to try to save the others. That plan included taking down a number of them, which was a very sad day. It was Mm -hmm. back in March. They brought some people in. They, you know you know, these trees go back to long before air conditioning. Yeah. So there were people there, older people who remembered in their childhood when the buildings were 110 degrees in the summer, that's where they cooled off. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good memories under those trees and in that park. And seeing them go down was was pretty a sad day. It was. But um, there are these people out there. This guy's name is Austin Vias. Um, he uh, lives in Milton. He's actually a pre-med student at Northeastern. And uh, there's a couple of others, and and they just reclaim these old trees. Um, they don't have to pay for them. They haul them away, and they um, the, through the magic of milling and woodworking, they 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 cut them into these slabs. Now there are precautions they have to take when the trees are diseased, mm-hmm. and, and they do that, and it's it's not easy, it's not cheap, um, but they're able to use this wood, which is very rare. We don't find it anymore, and you certainly can't cut a tree down and use it. Right. Um, so, uh, what he's created. Um, through one of he he took one of the elms and um, he has made um, some like uh, serving trays out of them. Uh, he made this huge wine rack um, mm. and uh, some of it, it's tough. You know he's got these giant slabs. He's got about twenty of them in his garage, which he has cut. And because because of the what you have to do to make sure that the disease doesn't continue, uh, some of them are warped. He's trying his best, but um, you know he's not alone. These people go all over Massachusetts taking these old trees and giving them new life and that's what he's done for these trees and they're going to put a park bench uh potentially you know, you know yeah. there's all kinds of red tape about this <laughs> yeah. sort of stuff yeah. but but potentially they want to put a uh, he wants to donate a park bench to the friends of franklin square oh. um which would be this tree um and and people would be able it would be able to live again in in there and serve a purpose um not mm-hmm. as shade but as a place to sit down
0: a little shell. Silverstein, right here. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: the Giving Tree. Yeah.
4: The, the Giving, giving Tree. You
0: know. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, is that good news is that enough for you, Sue? Yeah, that's good news. That's good news. <laughs> it, made,
3: it brought back the horrors of the Dutch elm disease that I recall, but now I'm happy. so yeah. When I see the bench, I'll have a, I'll have closure. <laughs> <laughs> the
0: circle of life. We, that's what we do here. Mm-hmm. Thank you all for joining me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Again, Dubchis is a digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Seth Daniel, a senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which. includes the Chelsea Record and the Revere Journal. And Sue O'Connell is a commentator for NECN and WGBH and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Coming up, It's a novel with characters so compelling, it feels like nonfiction. And indeed, some of the personal details of main character Little Dog's life are based on the real life of author Ocean Vong. This is the poet's first venture into prose, which has drawn high praise for its lush yet spare descriptions. Vong's On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous is our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. Poet Ocean Vong ventures beyond his much lauded poetry in his debut novel. On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. The evocative prose poem explores the power of language in the story of a young Vietnamese-American man who writes a letter to his mother who cannot read. Vong is the author of the 2016 poetry collection Night Sky with Exit Wounds, which earned him the T.S. Eliot Prize. He's also won a Whiting Award and an Academy of American Poets Prize. He is the former managing editor of Thrush Press, and he's on the faculty in the Masters of Fine art program at UMass Amherst. Welcome to Under the Radar, Ocean Bob.
2: Hello, Callie.
0: This is a beautiful book. Thank you. Lovely. So so touching on so many ways, which we will explore. So I've given the setup, which is a letter, the character in the novel, a little dog writes a letter to his mother who can't read. Why did you first decide to move away from poetry to go into writing a novel to tell this story?
2: I found that you know, after writing poems for 10 years, I got a little too good at getting out of the poem. Not good in, in the sense that it was, you know, successful, but when the heat got too hot, I escaped the poem. You know, it's a short poems are you know, lyric poems are short, and when it gets too scary, you can duck out. And I got really good at ducking out the side door, and I thought, you know, as an artist, I wanted to challenge myself. I had these questions, you know, what does it mean to embody American violence as a means of American self-inquiry and self-knowledge. And I thought the novel would not let me off the hook, and boy, did it not.
0: No, you get to the point, believe me. Um, But before we move totally to what's happening in the novel, a lot of the themes that you touch on in the novel, which is, by the way, Mm semi-autobiographical for people who have not yet read it, You had begun to explore in Night Sky with Exit Wound. So is this now an expansion of that? How did you see the novel then working in that way?
2: Yeah, I always felt that these questions we ask ourselves are inexhaustible. And, you know, which is sometimes antithetical to publishing as an industry. Sometimes we publish something and our peers and friends say, you know, you, you already did that to yeah, do something else. You have to reinvent yourself. We want a fresh new flavor. And that's the anxiety of capitalism. But I felt that these questions are questions that came before I was even born. The question of what does it mean to be an American when we ask ourselves, what have we done to each other as a way to know who we are to each other? These questions are the founding questions of this country. And I didn't feel like 85 pages of paperback poems satisfied that. And I carried it over. So it was an experiment, honestly. I never thought it would carry through. Um, I, I just took it one day at a time. But I knew in myself that these questions are inexhaustible, that one book would never be able to contain it, maybe not even two or three.
0: So just another question about form you could have made it a memoir because mm-hmm. because it's semi autobiographical why not go in that direction
2: memoir is interesting when we think about a writer of color i think often in this country writers of color are asked or demanded or expected to be anthropological conduits of an epicenter or asked to be tour guides of an often uh, smoldering you know uh, exotic milieu rather than world builders and world makers. And so I wanted to insist that the foundation of this home, if we can call a novel a home, the foundation of it is true, the people, the context of history. But what happens in that home? The, the roof, the windows, the colors, the furniture, all that is the work of my imagination. And I wanted to pay homage to historical truth, but also pay homage to myself as an artist of color, filled with the agency of the imagination.
0: Okay. And part one, at very at, at the beginning, you describe the, the character, so I want you to read a little bit of that. That's on page
2: 10. Mm-hmm. I'm 28 years old, 5 feet 4, 112 pounds. I am handsome at exactly three angles and deadly from everywhere else. I am writing you from inside a body that used to be yours, which is to say, I am writing as a son. If we are lucky... The end of the sentence is where we might begin. If we are lucky, something is passed on. Another alphabet written in the blood, sinew, and neuron. Ancestors charging their kin with the silent propulsion to fly south. To turn toward the place in the narrative no one was meant to outlast.
0: That's my guest Ocean Vaughn. He's the author of On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, and he's reading from his first novel. It's just... So beautiful. You really have a good sense of who the character is and what the character is thinking about uh, in terms of writing this letter to his mother. And that, that conceit of writing the letter, I thought to myself, not you. I'm not the writer you are, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that really allowed you to be way more open. Because yes. since the mother cannot read, you can just share... Uh, you or little dog in the the case, can share so much more than perhaps if the mother could read.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and it allows for detours. You know, sometimes we we ask, what's the plot of a novel? And we think a plot is something physical. Where do these bodies move through a timeline? But I felt that the plot of the novel in this novel is the letter itself, so that the speaker could detour, have a, a, a parenthetical side meditation, and then come back and just say, ma, ma, ma. And that's the plot. That's the real ground for his explorations. And, and I, I feel that it was one way to cast a better version of myself. You know, Little Dog is much better than me. Mm. You know, in, at least in this version, he got 12 drafts. Uh, Ocean Vaughn only gets one draft. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I get one shot at this life, and I don't always get it right. But Little Dog gets 12. And so the beautiful thing about writing such a novel with a character close to yourself is that you can write the better version of yourself, and who wouldn't want to try that? Yeah.
0: Now, you mentioned at the beginning of this the theme of violence that runs through the novel. But what I was taken with is just how much you paid attention to the antecedents of the violence and what's happening currently. So it's an action that both has impact on the giver of it, if you will, or the, the perpetrator, and also the recipient in different ways. And I thought that your uh, talking about that and the way that you described it was really very powerful because I think people only think about sometimes the recipient and maybe not what's happening on the, on
2: the other side. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you for observing that. That's a gr- astute observation. And I always felt that you know, this is in a sense a coming of age novel, and a lot of coming of age novels, like classic ones like Salinger's *Catcher in the Rye*, Sylvia Plath's *Bell Jar*, they're focused within in a contemporaneous time frame. Usually, it's in the present. The speaker struggles and then either graduates uh, high school, or goes to college, or moves on into adulthood. But it doesn't have a prehistory, and I think. A lot of times, particularly in the canonical literature, you know, we're uh, afraid to look back. We don't have a prehistory with these characters. And I, for, for me, I felt one way to think of coming of age is coming of history, coming into terms with history. And so Little Dog doesn't just exist within childhood. He has a prehistory. And I felt that wasn't really done in the coming of age story in America. We don't come out of nowhere. We have a place and we have elders who nourished us, who taught us, who were hurt along the way. And reckoning with the past is just as important with reckoning with the present.
0: Yeah, that is an extremely, I can't tell you how extremely powerful that is coming through because, you know, you really keep coming back to it in many uh, interesting ways. And I I found that really revelatory in, Mm. in so many ways. But I have to say my most, most poignant scene in the book, which I'm really going to ask you to read, is Mm -hmm. the one in the butcher shop. Um, Because as we were talking here about language and the importance of language, and you and I were speaking briefly about Toni Morrison before we started this conversation. And she said so much about the power of language and what it can be. And that, I thought, said it all in about six different ways.
2: When you came home that night... After Lon and I had eaten our share of tea rice, we all walked the 40 minutes it took to get to the sea town off New Britain Avenue. It was near closing, and the aisles were empty. You wanted to buy oxtail to make Bau way for the cold winter week ahead of us. Lon and I stood beside you at the butcher counter, holding hands as you searched the blocks of marbled flesh in the glass case. Not seeing the tails, you waved to the man behind the counter, when he asked if he could help, you paused for too long before saying, in Vietnamese, Lui Bo, and God Lui Bo, come. His eyes flicked over each of our faces and asked again, leaning closer. Lan's hand twitched in my grip. Floundering, you placed your index finger at the small of your back, turned slightly, so the man could see your backside, then wiggled your finger while making mooing sounds. With your other hand, you made a pair of horns above your head. You moved, carefully twisting and gyrating so he could recognize each piece of this performance. Horns, tail, ox. But he only laughed, his hand over his mouth at first, then louder, booming. The sweat on your forehead caught the fluorescent light. A middle-aged woman carrying a box of Lucky Charms shuffled past us, suppressing a smile. You worried a molar with your tongue, your cheek bulging. You were drowning, it seemed, in air. You tried French, pieces of which remained from your childhood. Derrière de vache, you shouted, the veins in your neck showing. By way of reply, the man called to the back room, where a shorter man with darker features emerged and spoke to you in Spanish. Lan dropped my hand and joined you, mother and daughter, twirling and mooing in circles, Lon giggling the whole time. The men roared, slapping the counter, their teeth showing huge and white. You turned to me, your face wet, pleading. Tell them. Go ahead and tell them what we need. I didn't know that Oxtail was called Oxtail. Oxtail. I shook my head, shame welling inside me. The men stared, their chortling now reduced to bewildered concern. The store was closing. One of them asked again, head lowered, sincere. But we turned from them. We abandoned the oxtail, the bumbo way. You grabbed a loaf of wonder bread and a jar of mayonnaise. None of us spoke as we checked out. Our words suddenly wrong everywhere, even in our mouths. That's
0: my guest, Ocean Vong. that I've read it several times. It's so moving to me. Thank you. I just saw myself in the space and watched the scene. I mean, you really said everything to me in that about... Just trying to be understood, and then right. the the shame of little dog feeling I don't have the word to explain, and I'm letting my family down. Right, you know, and I'm the promised one, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So the weight of the immigrant child or the the child of color who's supposed to be better than, and, yes. and, and that's a lot.
2: Yeah, it's it a is. lot going on in that scene. Yeah, and it's it's <laughs> the seed of determination because he says never again, I will not fail them ever again. And it's, it's a, the means of nourishment. They were trying to feed themselves. Exactly. And, and their bodies weren't legible without the correct English, the right grammar and tones and intonations. And we all do that. We all have to trespass these barriers in order to wear these masks, in order to, what, sustain our bodies.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. My guest is Ocean Vong, author of On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. It's his debut novel and our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. So... I want to go back to that because I started thinking about how beautiful your imagery is. Now, of course, you're a poet, so your whole job is to make sure that the words are right and they're precise. But I wondered if in translating and explaining and paring down to the basics to help your loved ones, that it actually made you a better writer because you're using words. Sometimes people write imagery and it's beautiful, But it's a lot of work for Mm -hmm. me to get through. It's Mm -hmm. gorgeous, but you know. But you use basic words that are just said beautifully. Do you know what I'm saying? (laughs) So, so it. I wondered if that helped you. If that was part of the process.
2: Right. You're (laughs) absolutely right. Because as an interpreter, you know you hear English coming in one ear, and in the space of the ear and the mouth, with which is basically four inches, you now have to turn what you heard into Vietnamese in a way that is, can be understood, can be packaged and efficient and useful. So I learned early on that language at its best is not decorous, it's not just to be pretty, but it has to be useful, it has to serve bodies and people. And I didn't know it then, but I would argue that I've been training my whole life to be a writer, to turn the detritus snaps and snags and debris of languages around me into something coherent, digestible, and ultimately useful to those around me.
0: Well, to me, that is the excellence of this because it's just so approachable, so resonant. It's everything because it is very carefully but very clean and basic and not decorous, as you said, So I and I love it. There's nothing wrong, you know, if people can do decorous, more power to them. I'm just saying right, right. <laughs> it makes yeah. a huge difference in the power of it as far as I'm concerned.
2: Yeah. And I'm aware of this, this anxiety we have with the way we think about hierarchical art. We, when we think of, of uh, poetry or high literature, we say high literature, elevated language. I said, well, why does it have to be up there to be useful? I think there's perfectly useful language down here where everybody's at. At the end of the day, we're all shoulder to shoulder.
0: You uh, spend a, a fair amount of time in, with your character in the novel exploring his sexuality. And I know that for a lot of people, that's fraught in immigrant communities. No, don't, don't, don't talk about that, because now you're adding another layer onto our woes. You know, you didn't have to. So why did you decide that you would do that and do it in a very powerful way?
2: If I shied away, I would forsake my ancestors and my predecessors and my heroes. One of whom is James Baldwin, who operate under same predicaments as you just mentioned. You know, uh, uh, how do I be queer and black in a community that might not recognize that uh, that character and that life? And Baldwin so vehemently said, "This is all of me." And this is where I come from. I come from the church, he says, you know. And likewise, uh, following that line, I think to myself, well, this is where I come from too. And this is a queer character who's nourished by these women who come from war, who might not understand queerness, but ultimately accepts it through love. And I think that's what I wanted to ask, is how far can love take you in this world? How far can love help you survive and I think that's part of the reckoning these characters have with each other they don't accept it they don't agree with everything they do but they love each other enough to realize that there's there's a tsunami called America and we're in its shadows and if we don't figure this out we'll get swallowed up and and I think through that understanding they saw that love is a way of survival.
0: So when you were writing this novel, things were fraught, but they're really <laughs> fraught and politically now, and there is a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment out there. I wonder how you see On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, fitting into this time now. What can it give a reader now? It just, Or even do you want it to speak in this moment in that way?
2: When I was writing this, I was an adjunct professor, at NYU during the election cycle. And I was teaching creative writing. And every day I went into class and I had to convince these 19, 18, 20-year-olds that language matters. And there are days, I tell you, because of what's been going going on in the TV and the election and how dirty and and resentful that election was and, and still is in this presidency, it was hard for me to really walk the walk As a teacher, I had a crisis. I said, does does language matter? I don't know. And I had to write this book to figure it out. And I think that's why it's a letter to a mother who can't read because if the recipient is not promised, the pressure now falls on language itself. And I think language is a third character in this book. And I think what I tell my students and, and what I hope folks get out of this book is that you don't have to be a writer to control and wield language. You just have to be a human being who's speaking. We can change the way we think by changing the way we speak. We don't have to use the language of violence. We don't have to use language of destruction to celebrate our bodies. And one of the things the book explores is how we say, "This is, I'm killing it. I'm smashing them. The language of destruction. And, and, and you don't have to be a writer. You could change it right now and you can say, you know what, that's giving me life. I'm living for that shirt. Mm-hmm. I'm living for those glasses, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, yeah. and and all of a sudden, it changes the way we think. And I think in order to live the world we want to live, we have to speak it first.
0: Absolutely. So I should mention that the book, uh, even though it is a novel, there are pieces of it in the, the format and also the way that you've laid out the language that feels like little poems. That's obviously deliberate on your part as yeah. well. Yeah,
2: yeah. I wanted the book to fall apart. And I think a lot of prose writers' novels will get nervous when the floor of narrative falls apart. It's like, oh, my novel's falling apart. I'm not, I'm no longer, what can I do? But as a poet, I knew that poetry is actually an art where you break and crumble into unity, mm-hmm. and which is why it was so important to me to learn poetry first as a writer because I wasn't ashamed or afraid of language being broken, that the break is beautiful, that the crack in the language is where the light comes through, as Rumi reminds us. And and so I wanted to embed that disintegration, that if I'm going to write an American novel, I did not want to write a monolithic, cohesive one. To have these uh, moments of fractures uh, actually articulate more faithfully what it means to me to live in an American body, that we do fall apart in this country. And the question then is, how do we pick ourselves up? How do we get back to cohesive prose after the break?
0: Very well said. Well, Ocean Vuong, you know it's tough to to cut through the white noise when you're an artist, and when you do, you have platform all of a sudden. And I wonder, if because now you have a bigger platform, if you feel any pressure to be the credit to your race, because it often happens yeah. to folks of color I mean, you you felt the pressure just to be the, make sure that you were the voice for your family or right. a, as was described in your novel. That was a question that came to my mind.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's always there. <laughs> I'm always careful. And I think this is why I wanted to insist that this is a work of the imagination because, you know, these are lives that existed and I don't want to write a memoir where I say this is the statement of who they are. I don't want to be a representative, an ambassador of of any group of people. Also because I am so many things besides Mm -hmm. being queer and Vietnamese American immigrant. I'm also a dog lover. I'm a vegan. Do I have to (laughs) represent those folks, too? I'll be stretched too thin. But I think... You know the pressure, though. That's why I'm asking No, it's true. (laughs) It's true. And one thing I will say is that, (laughs) you know, I'm not alone now. You know, Mm. 20, 30 years ago, there could only be one. And now there's Monique Trung, Viet Win, Nguyen, who just won the Pulitzer, That's Human Nguyen. Right. Mm-hmm. There's so many people, T. Boy. so many Vietnamese-American writers, and that we're finally creating a diaspora and a literature, an actual literature of our own. And I feel really, really lucky to be alive in this moment because you're absolutely right. 20, 30 years ago... The rule was that there could only be one, and in order to have a career, you had to supplant somebody else, the, the, the stagnant, patriarchal rubric that came before us. Now we have myriad ways. We have allies, and we can move into the literary world as a family, and it's an incredibly lucky space to be in, and, and I didn't do it alone.
0: Well, we're lucky as readers to have the work, and I enjoyed it very, very much, and I know other people will as well, and I'm looking forward to your, your next piece.
2: Thank you so much, Callie. It's a deep pleasure to be here.
0: Ocean Vaughn is a poet and novelist whose debut novel is On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. You can also join us in person at the Boston Public Library Thursday, September 12th at 3 p.m., where we will be talking to the candidates for the Boston City Council District 5 seat. You can learn more by checking the BPL Studio Calendar at WGBH.org. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugertz and John Parker. Francisca Monaghan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.